Jesse's story about um, being abandoned reminded me of a funny story that's not related to my sermon, uh, but it'll embarrass my parents, so I'll tell it. Um, my, my family, we, we didn't do huge vacations. We, we camped a lot. Uh, so we camped a lot. And one year, we, we weren't going to camp. We were going to go on an actual vacation to, uh, to PEI because we'd made some friends there from hockey. Uh, and so we drove. Uh, my dad doesn't really like planes. Uh, and so we drove to PEI, uh, which was great. You got to see stuff all along the way. Uh, and so we drove all the way there, and we had an amazing time, and then we drove back. Uh, and my dad's one of those people that, like, we'll stop uh, when we absolutely have to stop uh, on the way. And so we're stopping at the highway rest stops. That's pretty well where we're going to stop. You can eat there, you can go to the washroom there, you can stretch your legs, you can do it all in one, let's do it there. And so we did. And on the way back, I remember we stopped and we got, I think it was McDonald's. Uh, and we stopped there and we all got McDonald's. And my younger sister and I went to the washroom. We were going to go to the washroom before we leave. And so my parents grabbed my older brother and my younger brother and they went out to the car and we were going to go out to the car and meet them. Only for some reason, they thought we were with them. And so they got in the car and started driving. Uh, and so they, I think, you know, my sister and I come out of the washroom and they're not there. And we go outside and the car is not there. And so my younger sister is crying at this point, thinking like, oh great, they've left us forever. And I thought like, well, at some point they're going to remember. Like, at some point they'll do a head count and see we're only at 50% of the children in this van. Uh, and so at some point they'll turn around. And so they did, they remembered to turn around. But the, the part that I remember about this is that my older brother was in the back and knew that we weren't there and just didn't say anything. Uh, I don't know if he was just thinking, like, this is the time. You know, we'll get far enough that they'll just call it a lost cause and they won't go back for them. Um, so I'm glad that, Jesse, your parent was uh, remembered that you were there and was there the whole time. Um, I want to start today's discussion by telling you the most repeated joke that I have heard in my entire life. Uh, several people in this church have told me this joke. Uh, my father-in-law has said it to me numerous times. My friends have all said this same joke to me at some point in our friendship. Uh, and this joke comes from a video clip. Uh, and so I'm going to show you the video clip. Once you hear the video clip, you'll automatically know the joke. So Ryan, go ahead and play that video clip. Not this one. That I have heard my that I have heard my entire life is Luke, I am your father. And every time someone tells it, they think they have uncovered the joke of all jokes. It's like Luke's around the world have never heard this before. But the only person I think who's actually never said that to me is my wife. And the reason is because she's never seen a Star Wars. Uh, and so we can all judge her accordingly. Uh, the worst part of that joke, though, the worst part of me hearing that joke my entire life, is Vader does not say, Luke, I am your father. 
If you heard it, he does not say that. He's, Luke says to Vader, he says, you killed my father. And Vader goes, no, I am your father. Two totally different things. He never says, Luke, I am your father. And so that was the worst part of this. I always get quoted, Luke, I am your father, in this famous uh, movie clip. And that clip does not say what the people think it says. Regardless, though, that clip is a very famous clip, right? Uh, when I put it on, if you're familiar with the Star Wars saga at all, you have probably knew exactly what clip was coming. You could probably predict it. Um, and then there's this, there's this sense of after Luke says that and, and, and Vader responds, Luke lets out this guttural cry, this scream, right? This like, no, it can't be like anything but that. And so what does that clip have to do with our sermon today? We're in week four of this looking at seven sayings from the cross. Well, the first thing that it has to do is that the words in, in that clip and the words in today's sermon or the words in today's verse that we're looking at are quite famous. I would actually guess that most Christians have heard uh, the words we're going to talk about more than once. They've probably heard a lot of sermons on them. They have probably have them memorized. Uh, and they're in two of the Gospels that we know uh, they are for sure recounted in. But second and more importantly... This clip in Star Wars, Luke has this utter anguish, this sense of deep pain, this sense of, of intense suffering at just finding out who his father is, right? And in the words that we are going to look at today, we see a similar intense suffering, a deep pain, an internal agony. And so I want to just read the words as they are written in Mark 15.34. So I'm going to be using Mark 15.34. They are also believe in... Matthew 27, I think 46. Numbers always mess me up. So they're somewhere around Matthew 27. But Mark 15, 34, it just says, And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. And it says, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? And what we're looking at right here is Jesus, he cries out. It says, Jesus cries out in a loud voice voice, right? It doesn't say Jesus said, right? It often says that, and Jesus said, or Jesus replied, or Jesus prayed, but it says Jesus cries out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the original language, it's just four words, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. And when you, when you see with the video clip with Luke uttering out this, no, it can't be, and then you hear the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think you can accurately match the anguish that we see on Luke's face with some of the pain that Jesus would have been feeling. Right? I think we sometimes gloss over this because words on a page, it's easy to not understand them or read them right. Uh, a great example is humor. Go listen to your favorite comedian's stand-up routine. Uh, and then go read a transcript of his stand-up machine. The stand-up routine on a piece of paper is just not funny. But when you hear it, you understand the emotion and you feel it. Right? And in a similar way, we read the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're like, okay, that's nice, and we keep going. But we just gloss over the emotion that would have been behind it. These are powerful words. There is power and pain and anguish and suffering in the words of Jesus that we look at today. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the first point I want to make is I want to set the scene here. So I want to set the scene for where we are and what we're looking at today. So we're back a couple thousand years ago, and it was a Friday morning. And the world wakes up, and it's this Friday morning. And in this particular Friday, it's execution day. It's the Roman execution day. This is the day where we're going to have some executions. 
The day begins promptly at 9 a.m. Most historians will agree that Romans were rather punctual about these things. They didn't just get up and kind of figure out when we'll get going today. It wasn't like they were on vacation. They got up, and this was what they were planning to do. And so the crucifixion starts promptly. It's the first thing they're going to do. So it starts at 9 a.m. Already at the beginning of this crucifixion, there's a crowd gathering, right? There's people gathering. They didn't have Netflix back then, and so this sort of a thing was sort of this gruesome sense of entertainment. So this crowd gathers to watch this thing. They're laughing, they're jeering, they're taunting. They're having a great time watching this thing happen. The scene is we see, we see three men on a cross on this hill. The one in the middle has been beaten rather badly. There's blood hanging off the one in the middle. His face is bruised and swollen. There's a cross that was made out of, or a, sorry, a crown made out of thorns that's been jammed and forced onto his head. And the other two are there with him. The man in the middle, though, he starts uttering some words. He starts talking to himself. And it sounds like you can hear in the distance, you can sound like a prayer, sort of, he's been saying. You hear the one in the middle asking for forgiveness for those people who are around him. You hear him say something about forgiving people. They didn't know what they were doing. And then the criminal on his right starts talking to him, and the man in the middle starts talking back to him and to the one on the left. And he speaks to the one on his left. He says something about this criminal and him being in paradise together. And then the man in the middle cross, he looks and he sees his mother and he sees his friend, and he says something to both of them. And then all of a sudden, the whole world goes dark. It says at noon, a darkness fell upon the land. Luke's version, I like even better, Luke says, the sun failed. That's what Luke says. He says the sun failed. That's what he says about the event. No one knew what's going on. This darkness around the world lasted for three hours. Three hours, a black sky, a dark sky. There was no sun. And then around 3 p.m., the darkness disappears. And in a hefty cry, the man on the middle cross cries out. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's what he says. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is one of the hardest statements in the entire Bible to unpack. This is one of the toughest statements to look at. For me personally, speaking is something that I, I enjoy and I found that I am naturally good at. It's always come naturally to me. Pastor Jesse and I record a podcast every week and I never do a script. Uh, I sometimes don't even tell Jesse the questions before we're about to jump on because I want it to seem natural and like a conversation. And so I never just write a script up. I come up with some questions and I figure, yeah, we could fill a half an hour. There's two pastors. Come on, the problem will be cutting us down to a half an hour. Sermons, too. Sermons have always been something that I've found that it's not terribly hard for me to, to do a sermon or prepare a sermon. I like speaking, and for between 20 and 30 minutes a week, you all have to be quiet and listen to me. Uh, and I get a microphone while I'm doing it, too. Uh, usually when I'm preparing a sermon, I, I read a verse, and I have a few ideas. I meditate upon the verse, and I think on the verse, and I pray about it, and I think this might be uh, where God's telling me to go with this, or this might be what God is saying with this one. And then I spend a few days like, researching and looking at commentating uh, books, perhaps studying the original languages, just looking over what everyone else has said about this. And usually after some of that, I'll have some sort of a sermon prepared where I can sit down and, and write it out. But these four words, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, are different. They're very different. Uh, I went to all of my commentaries, and I have a, a great amount of commentaries. My grandfather left me, and I've uh, accumulated through school. And commentators hardly touch this verse. And they say it's, it's a very difficult verse to interpret, and they might say one or two sentences on it, and they move on. For a lot of the other seven sayings on the cross, they have lots to say about it. But for this one, they might say one or two things, and then they move on. Now, authors, I went to a few books about the crucifixion, and authors just pass right by this. They'll note what Jesus said on the cross, but sometimes they just gloss over this as if Jesus didn't say it. 
So it's hard to understand exactly what these words mean. Now, one of the, the best commentators that I read is F.F. F. Bruce, and he has a book called The Hardest Sayings of Jesus. And he talks about the 70 hardest sayings of Jesus, the 70 hardest things to understand. And he looks at this one very last in his book. And he says, this is the hardest of all the hard statements. This is a really tough verse to interpret. Commentators not touching it, other pastors in their sermons, they, they want to lump this one with other ones, and every sermon that I looked at to kind of see some inspiration, every one of them came to a different conclusion about this sermon. It's a bit of a mysterious statement. Because the problem isn't the words. We know what the words from the original language into English mean. We know how to translate them well. It's not a translation issue. The problem is rather, what do those words mean? When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? There's a story I read about Martin Luther in this verse. Martin Luther is apparently told to be studying this text. He's studying this text. And he comes across this part where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he just stares at it. He just stares at this text. For hours and hours, it's apparently true that he, he just stared at it. He just looked at these words, and he, he didn't write anything. Apparently, he wrote nothing. He put his pen down, and he simply stood up, and he said, God, forsaken by, by God. How can that be? Right? And that was his frustration. He said, how can we have God forsaking God? And he's right. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. How can we have one part of the Trinity forsaking another part of the Trinity? It's a very mysterious concept. Because the word forsaken here literally means to abandon, right? It means to be deserted, to be disowned in a sense. And so how could God abandon God? How could God desert God? And so Martin Luther was too confused by this. And so I'm going to do my best here to try and unpack these words. And I use the word unpack purposely because I am not going to explain exactly what these words mean. It is far beyond my education, my understanding of the scriptures, my wisdom. It is far beyond my abilities to explain these words to you perfectly. So I'm just going to try to unpack them a little bit. This statement is one of those times where, uh, as a pastor, I get to repeat the words of my favorite Bible college professor who says, there is mystery in God, and we can't explain all of his mysteries, and nor should we try. And so this is one of those times where I can say, this is one of those mysteries of God, and we can leave some mystery in the text. There have been several explanations of this text, though. I, I should note that some commentators do feel they, they, they understand exactly what it means. So I'm going to look at a few of the popular explanations of it, and we'll start by looking at what they say and what they mean. Um, I'm not saying that these ideas are wrong. I should note that. I'm not saying that they're wrong and I'm right. But I am saying that I don't think they grasp the whole story. I don't think they grasp the entire mystery of what these words mean. And so we'll start with explanation number one. So the first explanation is that these words are a cry from physical pain. So the first explanation of these is this is Jesus crying out in physical pain. Now there's no doubt that Jesus is in physical pain. Absolutely, Jesus is in physical pain here. He is going through unbearable, tormenting, agonizing pain. I mean, at this point, he has been tortured, he has been beaten, and he has been nailed to and hanging from a cross for six hours. He's already been on the cross for six hours. Six hours in the hot, hot desert sun, hanging from a few nails into a piece of wood. Right? And so he is in unbearable pain. And Jesus, Jesus, we have to remember Jesus was fully human, right? As well as he was fully God, he was fully human. And so while he's fully human, he is experiencing this physical pain. 
And so it makes sense that part of this could be physical pain. But I don't think it is a perfect explanation of what the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, mean. Because the first problem is that if it's physical pain, if it's that answer alone, it's the wrong answer because the central issue of the cross is not about physical pain. The central issue of what happened on the cross is not just looking at some physical pain. The central issue of the cross is our, our Christ, our Messiah, died and bore the weight of our sins. Right? So the central issue of the cross is him dying for our sins. It's not just about physical pain and physical torment, but it's that he bore the weight of the world, the sins of the world, upon his shoulders. And so while I think this answer gets at perhaps some explanation of where these words might have come from, to say that it comes out of physical pain and physical pain alone, I think misses a large part of what the central issue of the cross is. And so I think that that could be an okay answer for some, but I don't think it comes close to the full. Now explanation number two, the second explanation, is that this is a cry of faith. This is a cry of faith. If you know your Old Testament, or if you know your Bible well, you will know that this cry, this, sorry, these words, this cry from Jesus, is actually a quote. Jesus is quoting scripture here. He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. Now, in Psalm 22, verse 1, G, or David, sorry, in that Psalm, David is speaking about his suffering. He's speaking about his enemies that are following him, that are persecuting him, his enemies, and how they're after him. And so David cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so a few commentators say, well, this is Jesus quoting the Old Testament. Jesus was great at Scripture. Jesus knew his Scripture, right? After all, we see Jesus quoting Scripture all the time. Uh, when he's 12 years old, we find him back at the temple just talking about Scripture, right? So he surely would have known this famous Scripture. He would have known the Psalms. Uh, and, and so some say that because he was quoting Psalm 22, he was actually using this quote to show his faith. Because Psalm 22 ends on a confident note. This, the end of that grouping of Psalm ends on a confident statement of trust and faith in, Jesus, or in God. And so Jesus, by quoting David in Psalm 22 here, he was actually foreshadowing and he was showing, he was showing his, his faith and his trust. That despite what his circumstances look like, he's saying, you know, like David, this is going to all end okay. Right? And so some commentators, well, that's what he was doing. But the problem with this view is if we lean too much here... The statement seems to come out saying something like, you know, even though it looks like God has forsaken me, he hasn't really forsaken me, right? You know, even though it looks like I'm a bit in a bad spot here, God's still with me and it's really not that bad. I'm totally fine, right? The problem is that Jesus isn't just in physical pain here. Jesus, in his anguish, isn't saying, well, like, oh, this is awful, but don't worry, everything's going to end up fine. He's not saying that. In his anguish, Jesus is actually saying, God has forsaken me here. In this moment, God has forsaken me. And so I think that explanation too, again, like, yes, it probably is a quote from Psalm 22, but I don't think Jesus is playing some game here where he's saying, don't worry, like, I'm coming back for the sequel. Like, it's, it's, it's totally going to be fine because God hasn't really abandoned me. And so that's explanation number two. And I think explanation number three. Some people point to this text, and they use it as a statement of proof that Jesus was not the Messiah. They use this as a statement of proof that Jesus was not the Christ. This is proof that he has failed. To him, or sorry, to them, they look at this and they see his words on the cross, and they say it by basically saying, you know, Jesus was noting that, like, oh, like, shoot, I thought I was the Messiah, 
I guess I'm not, after all. I guess my mission here on earth has failed. I guess I, guess I wasn't the Christ. Uh, so they look at this and go, you know, Jesus is admitting that he's not one with God. Jesus' words, my God, you've forsaken me, are admitting he's not part of the Trinity. He's not one with God. Therefore, he wasn't the Christ and he wasn't the Messiah. And so that's what some people will look at this and say. But the big problem with that is a glaring problem, the fact that Jesus comes back. Right, so the, the huge problem with looking at this as a proof for his failed messiahship is that Jesus comes back. Jesus returns from the grave. And so if he was a false messiah like the many that were before, he, they wouldn't have come back. But Jesus comes back. He does that. And so the, that view is totally negated by the return of Christ there. So those are the three explanations that I came across in any of my study. And all those three are not perfect. I think in the first two, there are parts that make sense. And there are parts that I look at and I go, okay, yeah, that could, that could be partially true. And, you know, but I could add to my interpretation here, and that can make a little bit of sense. But it seems like they're not getting at the full meaning. Because neither one of the first two explanations makes complete sense. And so what do these words mean? What does it mean, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, honestly, uh, it's hard to know completely what they mean. There will always be a bit of mystery. And I think that's the first thing to know is that sometimes we need to just acknowledge that there is mystery in the text and it's okay to leave the mystery in the text. I don't want, uh, nor do I believe in a God that I can fully comprehend and explain all of the mysteries of God. Because if I can comprehend and explain all the mysteries of God, then I don't believe in a very big God if he can be explained by my limited mind. So I think the first thing to know is that there's, there's some mystery here and it's okay to leave the mystery there. One thing for sure that we can say is that we have to acknowledge in this moment we see Jesus was fully forsaken by God. In that moment on the cross, the bond between the Father and the Son was temporarily broken or temporarily changed. Luther said, Luther said it the best, he says, we have God forsaking God here. How can that be? Forsaking means, we, we don't use this word forsaken, but it means abandoned, disowned, deserted. Jesus says, you know, my God, why have you deserted me? My God, why have you abandoned me? My God, why have you disowned me? One interesting note here is that this is the only recorded prayer of Jesus that we have in the Gospels. The only recorded prayer where Jesus says, my God, in his address to God. The other 19 times that we see recorded prayers, or sorry, the other 10 times, but 19 times in those prayers, when Jesus addresses God in prayer, he says, Father. Right? He says, Father. He doesn't address him as my God. If we look back three weeks ago, and we remember the first saying of Jesus on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. Right? On first thing on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. And so Jesus usually addresses God by saying, Father, or Abba, but not my God. Abba is much more intimate. So why didn't he use Abba here? Well, a few commentaries say this is because in that moment, the intimacy between God the Father and God the Son was broken. They say this is proof that God had forsaken Jesus in this moment, that that bond was temporarily broken. And that's a bit of a mystery because Jesus, uh, you know, the Son, God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit, the Trinity, the perfect union, how can in one moment or how can in a moment God the Father abandon God the Son? It doesn't make sense in our limited understanding of the world. And in the words of Reverend Dr. Ray Pritchard, when he was preaching on the same thing, he said, we might not understand that. And indeed, it's actually certain that we don't understand it. But that is what those words mean. And so we move on, then if we can't understand exactly, then we have to look at the why. Why do we look at this? Why did God forsake God? 
Something has happened that has changed, uh, uh, or sorry, that has caused a change in the nature of the relationship from the father to the son. There's a bit of a change in their, in their relationship. And the answer for, for how we know that happened or what has happened comes to us from Scripture. It comes to us later in Paul's words. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says what happened. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5.28. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. In this moment, Jesus was bearing the sins of the whole world. Jesus was feeling the weight of all sin put upon his shoulders. All of our sin, my sin, your sin, all of it was put onto the shoulders of the one who had never sinned. So the one who had never sinned is in this moment bearing the weight of all our sin. And that's where we see start of the, some of the why is unfolding here. Because we know that God and sin cannot coexist. We know that, right? We know that in God's nature, his nature is perfection. And so in that nature of perfection, sin is not compatible with that nature. His, his, his nature is too holy, too pure, too perfect to coexist with sin. His nature opposes sin. And in that nature, the sin that was put on Jesus, or the sin that was Jesus was bearing upon himself, couldn't coexist with the holy nature of God. One of the commentators say, in this moment, it's like we see that Jesus is holding our sin on his shoulders and God has to turn away because he can't face that sin. They're unable to coexist. So in that moment, Jesus was completely abandoned or completely forsaken. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not just because he's in physical pain. And it's not just because he's showing his faith in God. And I'm sure both of those are partially true. There's an element of both that I think exists in this moment. But this cry was because he was truly forsaken by God. The Bible says it quite clearly. We looked at 2 Corinthians 5.21. The sinless one is made sin. And then in Galatians 3.13 again, we see Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Right, so Christ has redeemed us by literally becoming a curse for us. Isaiah 53.6 says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All our evil, all our crime, all our selfishness, all our failures, all of our sin was laid on Jesus. Every evil thing, every sinful action, every sinful deed from every person who has ever existed and who will ever exist was laid on Jesus' shoulders in that moment. And so what do we do now? What do we do with this? C.S. Lewis, Martin Luther, a bunch of other very wise people have essentially come to the same implications from this verse. They've essentially said two things we need to think about when we look at this verse, or two things are very important to remember in light of this verse. And the first is we cannot minimize sin. We cannot minimize sin. We should not minimize sin. We do this sometimes, though. We say things like, oh, it was just, it was just a little sin. It was, just, it was just a little lie. It was just a little white lie. It was just a little bit of gossip, right? We minimize it. We tell gossip or we steal a little small thing. And we think, well, you know what? I only took $5 from my boss's till. It's not like I murdered somebody. It's really not that bad. Or I only lied to my friend about the reason I didn't want to come over. It's, it's really not that bad. It's not, like, you know, it's not like I robbed a bank or something. But that day, 2,000 years ago, all of our sins were dumped on Jesus on the cross. So there's no such thing as, as just a little sin. It was just a little sin. All sin is sin. 
All sin is an affront to God. All sin is in opposition to God's nature. So all sin is missing the mark. In God's eyes, there's no such thing as a big sin or a small sin or just a little minor sin. All sin is sin to God. On the earth, we do have different earthly consequences or earthly punishments for sin, of course. I mean, if you gossip um, or, you know, perhaps you lust with your eyes, likely no one will even notice, and so no one will have any consequences or punishment for that sin. Whereas if you murder on earth or you rob a bank on earth, there's going to be some punishment. You know, there's going to be some consequences. If you cheat on your wife, there are going to be consequences to those sins. But in God's eyes, all sin is sin doesn't matter how big or small it is all sin. It is all missing the mark. It is all in opposition to his character. So all of our sin is what was poured on Christ on that cross. And so we, sh- we couldn't or we, we shouldn't minimize what is sin or what sin is. The second thing that a lot of wise people have come to, the second implication, is that we cannot minimize the cost of salvation. We cannot minimize the cost of our salvation. Salvation is free for you and I. It is. It's a free gift from God for you and I. But that doesn't mean that that salvation didn't have a cost. It just means that you and I aren't the ones that paid the price. You and I aren't the ones that paid that cost. But someone else did. It cost Jesus dearly upon that cross. Without Jesus on that cross, we would have no chance of this redemption. We wouldn't be able to do it on ourselves. We wouldn't be able to do this by ourselves and pay our own price. There's not a single person on earth who has walked the earth before Jesus or who has walked the earth since Jesus that could pay that cross for you and I, or that cost for you and I on the cross. There's not a single person who would be able to do it for us. The only person who could bear the weight of all of our sin was Jesus. He was the only person who could do it. And so we can't minimize the cost of salvation. We can't minimize what Jesus did for us on that cross. He paid the cost that you and I could never afford on our own. Those are the two things that commentators have said that we, you know, this is what we have to look at and the implications of this. It's not an understanding of the verse, but it's what we should do with it. Someone once asked me, it was actually kind of recently, someone asked me, how can you believe in God or in a God when you've lost your son like you did? And my honest answer was because that I believe in a God who lost his son too. I believe in a God who lost his son. I believe in a God who knows the pain and the sorrow of what a father experiences when losing his son. Because on that day, God felt that same pain. God felt the pain of watching his son bear the weight of all of our sin on his son's shoulders. We have a God who has gone through that pain, that sorrow, and he did it because he wants to be with you. He did it because he wanted a relationship with you. He wanted to know you. He wanted to commune with you. And he knew that we could never do this on our own. We couldn't pay this price on our own. And so he had it paid for us. He paid the price for us because he knew we could never do it ourselves. He was forsaken so that we don't have to be. He died a sinner's death so that sinners like you and I could be forgiven. Trust in Jesus. You won't be disappointed with what he is willing to do for you, what he has done for you. The love that you find in Jesus, the love you find in God, is a love that you will never experience anywhere else or in anyone else. It's a love that has no limits. It's a love that has no preconditions or qualifiers, and it is willing to pay whatever the cost needed to be with you. That's a love that I think we would all like to experience. That's a love that I think we all, could des- or we all desire much more than we ever know. 
That's a love so much more than we could ever experience here from our brothers and our sisters. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your, what you did for us on the cross. Thank you for what you went through and endured for us on the cross. Father, thank you that, that Jesus, you were, you were forsaken so that we're not forsaken. Father, help us to not minimize sin. God, it's too easy in our life to look at the things we do and say, well, that was just a little thing. It's not like so-and-so's, and so it's not a big deal. It's too easy for us to do that. God, help us not to do that. Help us not to minimize those times where, where, where we do wrong. Father, help us not to minimize the sin in our own lives by comparing it to others. Father, help us to see the sin in our eyes, in our lives. Father, thank you for the cost that you paid. Jesus, thank you for the cost that you paid on that cross. Help us to not minimize that cost. Help us to recognize what you did for us on that cross. Lord, thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.